Well, this morning's reading is taken from 1 Kings 12, and we're going to read from 1 to 24. At this point in the account, Solomon has just died, and Rehoboam is about to become king. And it says this, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, where he was still in Egypt, where he fled from the king of Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him and Jeroboam, and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them, and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who'd grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who've said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father's put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. Now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke to Ahijah the Shilonite, to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster, over the forced labor And all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. 
And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. Well, we're going to have a look at that passage, and you may well have noticed that we are not doing things in order, which you might, might seem very unusual for us here at Trinity, but it's just um, on account of obviously me missing a couple of Sundays. Um, and obviously we do want to be working through the whole Council of God, so we're going to go back to the bit that we missed this morning, and then hopefully from now on here we should be, should be all old school doing things in numerical order. Um, but that explains why I think last week you were looking at uh, the two golden calves and all this sort of stuff. So hopefully it won't be too confusing. Um, just a couple of things to say. At the end of this sermon, there'll be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things we've been thinking about. So do bear that in mind. It's nice to obviously know it's coming up so you can have the opportunity to think what questions you might like to ask and not be surprised um, when it comes. There's a sermon outline in your service sheet uh, which you're welcome to use if it's helpful and ignore if it's not. And finally, and most importantly, we're going to pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for this passage and we can see how you bring your plans to light. And we thank you, Lord, that you are the creator of this world. You bring everything into existence. You sustain the world. And it is your, through your will that you bring about your redemptive plan. Pray, Lord, that the things that we see here will be an encouraged to us today. Uh, as this, although it's an earlier phase of your redemptive plan, it's still part of that same redemptive plan. You can do the things that you need to do to bring about your good and uh, perfect purpose. Amen. Back many moons ago, when David became king. His kingship happened in two steps. So first, the people of Judah made him king in Hebron. Now, the reason the people of Judah were happy to accept him as their king was because he was from Judah. Meanwhile, the son of Saul, called Ishbosheth, he has made himself king of Israel. David would reign over Judah in Hebron for seven years and six months. And it would only be after a long war that David would become king of Judah and Israel together. Now what's interesting about this 
is it means that there's already been a precedent set for a divided kingdom. It means that when a divided king takes the throne of his father, he needs to earn the trust of the people of Israel. Otherwise, if they take umbrage, they can simply install their own king. Bearing this in mind, let's take a look at how events unfold in today's passage. We're going to briefly take a quick look back at chapter 11, purely to set the scene. What we know is this. Let's have a look back at 11 verse 13. Let's go a bit further back. Let's go to verse chapter 11, verse 11. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you've not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I've chosen. So Solomon has been told that one tribe will go to his son, but all the other tribes will be torn away from him and be given to another So that's what Solomon knows. Later on in chapter 11, God then sends Ahijah, the prophet, to Jeroboam. And he tells Jeroboam something very similar. Ten tribes will be given to you, and one tribe will be given to Solomon's son. Now, having heard this, Jeroboam becomes a little bit worried. He knows that his life is in danger, so he flees from Solomon and goes to Egypt. So we know that Solomon knows what's going to happen. And we know that Jeroboam knows what's going to happen. But we have every reason to believe that Rehoboam, Solomon's son, hasn't been privy to any of this information. He doesn't know what Solomon knows. He doesn't know what Jeroboam knows. But Rehoboam is Solomon's son, and the expectation is he will become king in Solomon's place. And being completely unaware of what Solomon and Jeroboam have been told, his actions won't be influenced by anything that's been said. He has a freedom to act according to his desire. He's not going to be swayed in any way by any information that's been received by anybody else, because he doesn't know it. And so when Solomon dies, we read in 12 verse 1, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Not only did all Israel come to make him king, but so did Jeroboam. He joins the crowd as well. 
Now, what's interesting at this point is God has said one thing will happen, but everything at this point suggests that what God has said won't happen. All Israel is there, ready to make Rehoboam their king. And so what's going to need to take place, what's going to need to happen for God to bring about the division of David's kingdom that he has foretold? Now, of course, we've just literally read the passage, so we know what happens. But at the same time as we read through the account, the outcome does feel far from certain. Rehoboam really does look like he's going to become king over the whole of Israel. But God has said that is not going to happen. And this raises the question, how does God work out his redemptive plan? Or when is divine intervention, divine intervention? Or when God says something will happen, is it at best a divine guess? Or is God determining the events that will take place? If what God says happens, does that negate the responsibility of those people involved? And these are all interesting questions, particularly when you see how things do unfold. So the people of Israel approach Rehoboam. And as they do, they're assuming he will be their king. And they bring one simple request. Make our life a little easier than it was under your father Solomon. Now, we might expect the young king to answer before thinking and demonstrate his inexperience, but to his credit, he takes time to consider their request and to receive counsel from his advisers. And so he calls upon the wise and older men who had counseled his father. They encourage him to listen to the people and agree to their request. We see what they say in 12 verse 7. And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Now while we read the account, we think surely that he will take their advice. And yet at the same time as the account unfolds, his actions are completely expected. A young king, with all the power that he has, surrounded by his contemporaries, who he's out to impress. And as soon as he decides to ask his friends, really the decision's already been made. He's not going to ask his friends, those he grew up with, and then once they give their answer, reject their suggestion. His young man, with too much power, showing off in front of his contemporaries. 
But Rehoboam wasn't coerced. He wasn't acting against his own will. He was completely free to follow the decision of the older men. But he did exactly what many young men would have done in his place. He followed his desire. And yet when we get to the end of this account, this is what we read in verse 15 of chapter 12. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. According to verse 15, everything that happened was carefully engineered so that what God had said would happen, did happen. God had told Solomon only one tribe would go to his son. And God told Jeroboam that he would become the king of Israel. And God has caused what he said to happen. But the interesting thing is, is when we read the account, it doesn't contain any of the coercion that's believed to be necessary to predetermine the events of the future. The punishment that God brought upon Solomon was achieved through the free decision of his son. And yet God's intended outcome was always guaranteed. Well, as we finish this morning, I want to take a closer look at verse 7. Because it's a striking, it's striking the wisdom of the wise men. It's asking the king to serve the people. It says this, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they'll be your servants forever. I think as we read this passage, it's a, pas- it's a verse that could be easily overlooked. We could miss it. But it's a king who will serve his people. The people are describing a king that serves his subjects. Now in the book of Isaiah we read of a mysterious character who's identified as the Lord's servant. Now because we know who this refers to, I don't think we tend to appreciate the mystery that surrounded this character. See on the one hand there is the Messiah. He is God's king. That's one character. But then there's the Lord's servant. He's another character. And when these two characters are first introduced, there's really no reason to think that these two different characters are one and the same. In fact, when they were first introduced, it would have been a radical thought to apply the servant passages to the Messiah. 
And yet here we read of a man who's about to be anointed as the king of Israel, the Messiah. And it's put to him, serve the people. Now, of course, it isn't until we come to the gospel that Jesus identifies himself both as the Messiah and as the servant of the Lord found in Isaiah. We read it earlier in Mark 10, verse 45, where Jesus says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus identifies as the figure of Daniel 7, who is presented before the Ancient of Days and is given an everlasting dominion over a kingdom that cannot be destroyed, while at the same time identifying as the servant we read of in Isaiah, the one who will lay down his life to pay for the sins of his subjects. It's a phrase that we're used to, but maybe don't appreciate the significance. Because Jesus is the servant king. But how will he lay down his life? Well, if we have a superficial read of the Gospels, we see with a complete freedom to follow their desires, the leaders of Israel turn against the one who professes to be their king. They hand him over to the Gentiles because they want to rid themselves of this apparent arrival. But then when we take a closer look, we see every one of their decisions brought God's plan of redemption one step closer. So in John 10 verse 17 to 18, Jesus explains that he lays down his life. Though it appears to have been taken from him, it hasn't. He's allowing all this to happen. Then in John 19, verses 10 to 11, Pilate's frustrated with Jesus and says to him, Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? To which Jesus answered, You'd have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Once again, everything that's taking place is done so to move forward the Father's plan to bring glory to his Son as he lays down his life for his subjects. And if there's still any confusion on this point, at Pentecost, Peter leaves us beyond doubt. Where in Acts 2 verse 23 he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And yet it's this that people can be uncomfortable about. The idea that God predetermines our salvation. But then what's the alternative? That our salvation depends upon our choice? 
Well, that puts us on a real shaky ground. Whereas in contrast, if God has demonstrated the earth came into existence by his will, that kingdoms have been raised and kingdoms have fallen according to his will, that his son was handed over according to his will, then how confident can we be that God will keep us until the end according to his will. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can read of your great redemptive plan. We can see it demonstrated through your creation and the way you rescue your people from Egypt. We see it when you send your son to die in our place. And we thank you that no one can stand in front of you and thwart your plan because you are sovereign. You are in the heaven and you do all that you please. We pray, Lord, that this would give us a great confidence, particularly as we live in a world that is unsure and uncertain. We pray, Lord, that we do not need to be uncertain because your plan of redemption has been published, is happening, and will not be compromised. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the start that there'd be questions or comments in light of the things that we've been thinking about. So, any questions, comments, or thoughts off the back of what we've been thinking about this morning? Okay, let me just repeat the um, question for the tape, the recording, the tape. Who uses tape anymore? Uh, so we talked about, very briefly, just mentioned a comment in passing about kingdoms rising and falling according to God's will. So how do we fit in uh, the Nazi regime within that? Um, well, here's the thing. I think the best place to go to explore that question is actually the book of Daniel. Um, and I think it's particularly helpful to go to the book of Daniel because there is a sense in that, you know, that is a time when there is a, a wicked regime that's been raised up. Daniel's there in Babylon, and he's in the thick of, uh, you know, they're in exile. They've been taken away from the land of God. And so everything looks like everything's gone wrong. You know, this is not how you know, God's plan has been thwarted because his people are isolated from Jerusalem. The temple's been destroyed. You know, God, the, the nations profane God's name because, you know, you couldn't look after Israel. They've all been taken from their land. You know, all is not well with the world. And yet the striking thing about the book of... I mean, the first thing that's striking about this, lots to be said, but the first thing that's striking about Daniel is the constant in Daniel, is Daniel. And it's picked out right in the first... It's one of those things that I think 
Adrian's pointed out, and I think it's one of those things you're likely to miss. Uh, let's see. So let me just read. Yeah, it's, it's kind of almost a throwaway comment at the end of chapter one. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, you know, that's the sort of thing you read and think, oh, okay. But what's happened between Nebuchadnezzar and King Cyrus? Was an awful lot has happened. Many kings have risen and come and gone. But Daniel is still by the king's side. He's the constant. And obviously the, the theme of Daniel, um, particularly found in the... Let's see. What's it? 4.17, let's run with that one. 4.17 says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men, gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. What's the, um, I'm trying to think of the bit with the stone. So verse 44 of chapter 2, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the kings that shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. So taking those two verses, the theme that we get from Daniel is that, yes, kingdoms will rise and they won't be good, but they will also fall. And new kingdoms will replace the old kingdoms and they won't be good, but they will fall because new kingdoms will be risen up and they will fall. But eventually, a kingdom will come that's not made by human hands and it is that kingdom that will destroy all the other kingdoms. It will be a kingdom that will never end. It will never be destroyed because it will be the kingdom of God. And so I think taking that sort of concept of the fallen world is expecting kingdoms to come and kingdoms to go, that we can appreciate then from that sort of... Um, pattern that actually there is an expectation that evil kingdoms will rise up like Nazi Germany and these things will happen and this is and Daniel is distraught by this as he you know there's times where he sees these visions and is ill for days because of the ter terrifying nature of these visions that he's seen but the take-home message is, but it's okay, God's plan will not be thwarted. 
And I think that gives us great confidence now. So things like COVID can take place. You know, they, we can be distraught because of the situation in the climate, uh, because of climate. We can think in terms of, you know, what's happened at Afghanistan? Why did that go so terribly wrong? And how have the Taliban now... And all these things, there's, there's plenty to worry about. But actually, Daniel gives us this view of, don't be surprised by this. These kingdoms will rise. They will fall. And worse kingdoms may well come in their place. But the kingdom of God has been established... His king has been anointed, and we're now waiting for the full consummation of that kingdom. Is that scratch where you it? Okay, uh, another question, Nikki. I didn't quite hear you. I got most of it, but not quite all of it. Yeah, so... Excuse me. Um, I mean, I think, I guess, in one respect, it's what I've taken from the account. So this idea, I'm kind of repeating the question in the answer. Um, so I guess the idea that he didn't know anything, like, I'm, I guess I'm sort of thinking, that's interesting, isn't it? Let's highlight the fact that he didn't know anything and then explore the fact that He's just doing what he wants to do. You know, this is how... In fact, it's not just what he would want to do. Anyone in his place would probably do something very similar. But what's intriguing is, as he does just the things that he wants to do, he perfectly brings about the plan of God. Um, and I guess then that's why we're kind of exploring this whole idea of I think when people talk about predestination and God's predetermination of events, they can't get past this idea of coercion. People are being... The only way that would work is coercion. Like, they would lose their responsibility, they would lose their freedom to... Um, you know, How could God control events to the point where they would do exactly what he would want them to do? But I think that's the intriguing thing, and that's, I, I guess that's why I've picked out that aspect of what's going on here. I mean, I can't, I mean, if he, I mean, I, I don't know, I'm trying to think whether there are examples of people who do know what's going to happen. I guess think in terms of Judas. Um, so Jesus says, this is what you're about to do. So he knows what he's about to do because Jesus has told him that he's about to do. You know, it's almost like a, 
you'd, I mean, it's not that Jesus is doing this, but it's almost that Jesus is kind of thinking, oh, hang on a minute, he knows I'm going to do this, he knows that I'm going to betray him, he's actually telling me to go and do this. This is probably not a good idea, is it? Yeah, he doesn't work through that thought motion. His, his actions are set in place. So there's a sense in that even in that situation, he, again, he's not being coerced. It's very much in the character of Judas to do those things. He's, again, following his desires to do what he would... He is a, um, a greed, greedy person. That's his character. Um, so... Yeah, I guess it's, I mean, I guess what I was trying to do this morning, and I think it's, it's something, any, anything, anytime when it comes to reading the Bible, it's worth um, coming at it from different angles, having a different mindset. So what I mean by that is, um, I'm going to read through the whole of Scripture in this year, and I'm going to think, what do I make of this predestination malarkey? Is it there or is it not there? And so you work your way through Genesis to Revelation, uh, and this is a meaty, meaty task. I give you that, but you know, with with that theme in the back, in 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 my in my mind, and I'm going to get to things like um, the Father gives the people to the Son, and the Son will not let the people go, and think, well, you know, that all seems pretty much like it's happening. You know, this is God's plan. This is it's you know and. And you can, you, you can do that with any sort of theme or doctrine, just sort of think, how does this unfold? And So I guess that's kind of partly what I was doing this morning. I've rubbled. What? Time for one more? Quick one? Yes, Susie. <laughs> I don't, yeah, how, how do you know whether your question is a quick one or not? Yeah, good question. So, I mean, the interesting thing about kings, and this is something that the people are warned in Deuteronomy, uh, and I think, yeah, they're warned back in 1 Samuel as well. If you have kings, then they will take your sons to war and they will put your um, daughters to service. You know, they will... They're high maintenance, <laughs> for want of a better, better word. Um, and... So, yeah, there is an expectation. And it, I guess, I mean, on one hand, you kind of think, what has Solomon achieved? Well, he's built the house of the Lord. He's built his own palace. You know, he has created this great kingdom. But he's had to do that at a great cost. And that cost is he's had to put his people to work. Uh, I think it does talk about slaves from outside as well as in, from other nations. But he's had to put his... And, you know, 
it costs a lot of money, so that means taxes and, and all this sort of stuff. So there is a sense in that a king comes with a lot of hard work. So do you want a king? That sort of thing. Um, as far as whether it's kind of a new thing, I think it's, it's explicit here, which maybe it hasn't been before. And you, we've, we've talked before about we've got this theme of shepherd running through um, the Bible because you've got Abraham was a shepherd, Moses was a shepherd. These were all shepherds. And, the, I mean, a shepherd is quite a, it's quite a complex relationship because in one sense, you know, the shepherd is, is a person and it subjects a sheep and, you know, they're just silly sheep. But actually, the shepherd has to care for and has to demonstrate a great concern for his sheep because they are fools, you know, they're, they're silly. Sheep are known for being stupid and so he has to look after them. He has to, you know, when they, they're lost, he has to go and get them and when, he, when the wolves come, he has to protect them. So he's putting himself in danger for the sake of the sheep. So it's quite a remarkable imagery, which is no surprise. It's God's using his own creation to tell us what he's like. And so there's a sense in that Moses, although he's not a king as such, he shepherds the people out of Egypt and he stands before the people protecting them. So it's an imagery, I think, that's there. But I think this is where it starts to become maybe more explicit. And then, of course, we mentioned the Isaiah account where, I mean, Isaiah takes that imagery and runs with it uh, big time. But then I think, I can't, I can't remember where I read it. I'm really frustrated because somewhere I've read about how um, the, the Messiah and the uh, servant are two different images. You know, they're not to be confused because it wouldn't make any sense to them to be confused. And I think it's in the Gospels where the two are put together by Jesus and all of a sudden this is mind-blowing. Again, it's the sort of thing we don't appreciate unless someone teases it out for us because we're so used to it. You know, from heaven we came, servant king, servant king. It's just, it's, it be, servant king becomes a cliche. It doesn't mean anything because uh, we, we're so used to hearing it. And yet, it's a remarkable thing. Let's stop there. And we are going to sing uh, From Heaven You Came. And just rub that cliche in. <laughs> just, uh, for, but yeah, try not to, try to forget the cliche and try to appreciate this juxtaposition of a servant and a king. That's not what we expect to see. Let's stand to sing. <laughs>